And as we get started this morning, let me just pray for our time together in the Word of God. God, thank you so much for this day. Your mercies are new every morn. Thank you. Thank you for being a gracious, compassionate, slow to anger Father who forgives our sin and separates us from it as far as the east is from the west, that through the blood of Jesus Christ, we are truly forgiven. There is no shame, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The gospel, Father, is such good news. Thank you for it. Thank you that we get to celebrate it once again this Lord's Day, that we are able to open up your word together in community. So give us eyes to see and ears to hear all that you would have for us this day. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, if you would, maybe have your children turn there. We're going to spend our time this morning in 1 Corinthians, the letter to the Corinthian church written by the Apostle Paul. It's in the New Testament. And so make sure you turn there with me this morning. We'll spend our time in chapter 1 in a brand new series. More on that in a few moments. But first, let me start with a multiple choice question. A little bit of school before school officially kicks off again. By the way, how many of you kids are excited for school to start? Anybody? How many of you are not excited for school to start? A few more of you. In the last service, there was just one child who like quickly shot up her arm, saying she was so excited for school to start. I'm like, wow, she really wants to get out of home. And then the mom said, but she's homeschooled. So <laughs> totally backfired on me. But it was, it was a good attempt. I mean, for me in my house, we've got teenagers and it's that kind of thing where at the beginning of the summer, we're like, oh, we're so excited for the summer and for all that the summer has to offer and for family time together and to have our kids home all day. And by this time in the year, once August starts flipping around, we're like, please, Lord Jesus, when will that school year start? And when will we be able to send our kids back into some setting with some other authority figure in their lives? Uh, so we're looking forward to that, but no, it's been a wonderful summer for the Zerilli household. I hope it has been for years as well. So here's the multiple choice question. What is easier to create when it comes to human relationships? A, division. B, connection. This should be the easiest question you've ever had to answer in your life. What's the answer? Division. Division, it takes milliseconds to create division. Let me prove my point. If I were to say U of M or MSU, division, just like that. And if you want to see it more pronounced on two Saturdays a year because of where I was born and raised, if I just go O-H-I-O in this state, like division. Ed Roden was in the last service. He's gone now. So my one lone friend and companion is out of the church. If I tell one of my children no, what's that create? Often division. If I ask my children to pick a movie like we did last night, they need to pick it together so we'll watch it together. What happens between my 9-year-old and my 14-year-old? Division. If we're at the grocery store and I say to them, pick either chicken nuggets or chicken strips. Division. Moose tracks, mint chocolate chip, division. In most families I know, a simple car ride has the ability to start a war. Just a car ride. 
There's division over who gets to sit in the front seat, or who gets to sit in the back seat, or what music we should listen to, or whether it's faster, usually between the spouses, to follow the directions of the app in your phone, or just go the way that you know, which happens a lot in our car. Or who left the car door wide open when we got home, which I still don't understand how you get out of a car and you just leave it open. But then the door's left open, and then who left the front door open or the side door open when we went into the house? We have division over that all the time. I feel like part of my job as a dad and as a parent is simply to walk through my house closing doors. It's like I have other things to do with my life, but there's many moments within the day. It causes division, I'm being honest, where I just go through the house, and it's like, shut the door, shut the door. Yeah, it's 95 degrees outside. Why not cool off outside? Our Lennox system will totally work with the outside weather. It'll just cool off the entire neighborhood and environment. But they just leave doors open all the time, creates division. Or even when it comes to church, I mean, we'll spend the morning in worship, we'll spend the morning singing praise to God, opening up His Word together, we get in the car, and then afterwards I say, where do you want to go to lunch? Man, all the stuff we just learned about Jesus, it's like out the window, just that quickly. We have this unbelievable ability to fight, to argue, to create division over anything. Anything. We'll argue about anything based on opinion. We'll argue about anything based on fact. We'll argue about things that are significant and insignificant, consequential and inconsequential, relevant and irrelevant. And one of the most common sentiments of our culture, which I know all of us have heard ad nauseum over the last few years, is that we are more divided than ever. We are more divided than ever. You hear this from everybody, younger people, older people, progressive people, conservative people, spiritual leaders, political leaders, divisions in ethnicities, genders, political parties, environmental issues, economic issues, over immigration issues, public health issues. We could go on. The lists are very easy to make. We could come up with our own 100-issue list. So it seems that the only thing we're united about is that we're not united. The only thing we agree on is that we disagree on everything. Now it's one thing for the world to be divided. It's one thing for the world to be divided over, say, politics or over cultural issues. It's one thing for the world to be divided over economics or race. You pick the issue. It's natural for the world to be divided against itself, all because of a story that we read about back in Genesis 3, where there's division introduced, where there's rebellion against the way of God, the peace of God, the grace of God, and there is instead a pursuit of self-idolatry in our own way, which brought about division, first with the Father and then with one another. And so it's natural for the world to be divided. It's, nat it's so natural that it's almost impossible to have a single conversation that does not focus on division. If you simply just replay the conversations from your previous week, how many of the conversations were focused upon divided opinion? Division is everywhere, but it's an awful tragedy for the church to be divided over such things. It's not in the nature of the church to be divided. 
It's not in the nature of the church to be divided because the church is the bride of Christ and Christ is not divided. Followers of Jesus have put away, according to the word of God, what is natural to the world and we've taken on through faith a new nature, the nature of Jesus Christ himself that is given to us ultimately through his spirit that indwells. Uh, Paul, in the book of Ephesians, puts it this way. He says, Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do, as the world does, in the futility of their minds. That is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him, as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. And to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. But the world's way of division, it creeps in and it has crept in. Crept into the people of God all around the globe and certainly even here. Tim Dalrymple, uh, the president and CEO of Christianity Today, he recently said this. He said, new fractures are framing within the American evangelical movement. Fractures that do not run along the usual regional, denominational, ethnic, or political lines. Couples, families, friends, and congregations once united in their commitment to Christ are now dividing over seemingly irreconcilable views of the world. In fact, they are not merely dividing but becoming incomprehensible to one another. A year ago, Mike Graham and Skylar Flowers, they wrote an important article. It was entitled, The Six-Way Fracturing of Evangelicalism. This is what they wrote. I'm just framing this conversation for us. Things that we already know, maybe intuitively, subconsciously, but I want to bring to the fore. They said, people in the pews are left questioning the extent to which their unity, our unity, is based on the apostles or Nicene creeds or other political, cultural, or and socioeconomic matters. The tectonic plates are shifting underfoot. This fracture, fracturing will like, likely be irrevocable, not because our gospel essentials are not unifying enough, but because the divergence of ethical priorities, cultural engagement, racial attitudes, political visions and illusions, and their implications for philosophy of ministry mean that unity is fundamentally no longer tenable. Now, these realities are why we're spending the next several weeks in a letter the Apostle Paul wrote to the Corinthian church. It's hard to even quantify the number of factors that are bringing division to the church. And when we are at odds with each other, the point is, the, the bottom line is that the world will not see Christ. It will see themselves, nothing more, nothing less. It's just a mirror into the heart of the world apart from Jesus. So we have to back up a little further, even before we start, because there is one massive social reality that is different between the first century culture of the Corinthians and ours today that undergirds all the words of Paul from the first to the last within this letter. And it's something that's so distant, perhaps, from our reality that we need to frame this in as well as we begin this series. Back then, individualism, individualism and isolation weren't really a thing. 
not nearly to the extent that they are today. People were deeply grounded in some form of community. Uh, Today, anthropologists would say, medical experts would say, in a post-pandemic world, it has been written about so many times over and over once again, this is the most isolated culture the world has ever seen. The most individualistic culture the world has ever known is what is happening right now during our lifetimes. Perhaps we're not all speaking from experience. Perhaps there are other periods, ages, seasons where that might not be the case, but when you look through the course of human history, certainly a strong point could be made that that is an accurate statement. And the point is you cannot have disunity if you're not in any community at all. So the major assumption of this letter, and by the way, every letter in the Bible itself, is that Christ's followers were in deep community with one another. We were not built to fulfill our purpose and experience all the blessings of our faith by ourselves. In fact, that's impossible. Christianity by its very nature is communal because God himself exists in perfect community. Father, Son, and Spirit. Now when we open up 1 Corinthians, let's remember as well that Paul was an enemy of the gospel. God radically turned his life around. And Paul became an incredible messenger for the gospel and the good news throughout the Roman Empire. And he would make these long missionary journeys, basically around the Mediterranean Sea, establishing churches. And on his second journey, he arrives in a city called Corinth. Corinth is in the uh, south-central part of Greece. Here's a map that will show you. It's on the northern side of the Mediterranean Sea. You see Italy there to the west, Asia Minor, which is what it was called in the first century, to the east. Uh, The Middle East with Israel and uh, Jerusalem, that would have been down to the southeast. And so there's Corinth. And Corinth was a bougie city. I mean, this city was the hot spot of trade, of culture. They had all kinds of different types of people. There were those that had and there were those who had not. There were the elite and the less educated. Classism was a massive reality within this context. Some of the estimates, in fact, um, state that up to one-third of the city's population were enslaved uh, because of their impoverished position. And so you had this massive distinction socioeconomically. But it wasn't just that. It was also ethnically. It was culturally. It was religiously. It was all of these different things. But into this melting pot of different people and different backgrounds and different lifestyles on different parts of the social totem pole, God sends his messenger, Paul, with good news. And he preaches a message of reconciliation through faith in Jesus Christ. That through Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, we can be reconciled to God. That's the core of the gospel, that we've been separated from God because of our own rebellion and sin, but through the work, the atoning work, that means the covering over work, the blood of Jesus Christ, which covers over the sins of those in faith and those within the world who would turn towards him, through his reconciling work, we are brought back into right relationship with the Father and with one another. It's a ministry, the Bible says, of reconciliation. So if you're a Christian, what all this means is that through Christ, we are called together. That we are called together in Christ. What was different, what is unique about each of us, what would cause division in each of our relationships or opinions or lifestyles, whatever it might be, that in Christ, we are united and brought together as one 
people of God. You may be from a trailer park or you may live in the mansion on the hill. You may have multiple degrees from prestigious universities or you may have barely squeaked by fourth grade. You may read uppity publications like the New Yorker or the Atlantic or you may read memes on Instagram. None of those cultural markers and status points matter when it comes to our relationship with God and our membership in his church. We are called together in Christ. But what does that actually mean? Three points for us this morning to answer that question. What does it practically look like to be called together in Christ? First, it means that we are together called to holiness. That we are called in Christ to holiness. Look at verse 1 of 1 Corinthians. Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints. Paul tells us who he and Sosthenes are writing to, the church of God. So immediately we see a community. Paul doesn't say, I'm writing to you, the individual Christian who's sitting down to read some of Scripture all by yourself in your private devotional time. Of course, we need to have individual meditation with the Lord, but this letter is meant to be read communally, understood communally. No, he says, I'm writing to you, the church of God, the people of God, the assembly of God, the collective community of Christ followers. And here's an insight our culture needs to hear. Notice what he says. He doesn't only say that they are God's people, that they are God's church. He says that they are God's people, but they are God's church in Corinth. And this is where so much of the tension and the conflict and the division comes from because they are people of God, heavenly people, who have this new nature, this new relationship with God, and yet they are still living here on the earth. There's tension fundamentally within that reality. Citizens of heaven and yet citizens of Corinth. And that's the core issue for these Christians. Quite frankly, it's the core issue for us as well. Which identity will influence them the most? It's the same question that could be posed to us. Will we be most influenced by our identity in Christ? Or our identity as citizens, in their case, in Corinth? Which one takes priority? Which identity rules the day? The priorities of Corinth were easy to identify. They weren't that different from ours today. Wealth, cultural prestige, honor, educational achievements, personal accomplishment. But yet when you chase after the world's priorities, there's always two results. The first one is maybe you will be set apart. It sets you apart because it's all about personal elevation and gain. But while you are set apart from others, it breaks apart relationships. Because the truth is, whenever life revolves around you and your group, there's no space left to love God and love your neighbor as yourself. The key to being called together in holiness, then, is what is found next. Paul says, I am writing to the church of God in Corinth to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints. Sanctified, it means make holy. It means to set apart. And the word saint is directly related. Saint means those who are sanctified, the holy ones, the set-apart ones. It reminds me, maybe kids, it reminds you, in your house, it's in my house, it's in the house I grew up in. Not all houses have this, but 
we have this china cabinet. And in that china cabinet are dishes that you are not supposed to touch. And so if you are like under a certain age, meaning not your mom and dad, then you're not supposed to go in that china cabinet because in that china cabinet are dishes and utensils, forks and spoons and plates that were handed down maybe from their mom or their mom or their great-grandma or whatever it might be. The ones in our home, it's my wife's grandmother's dishes. And those dishes, that we don't even keep them in the same room as the other dishes. Like they don't get to share the same space. They're separate. They're set apart. They're only meant for special occasions called holidays, which comes from, it actually derives from holy day. That's where the word even came from to begin with. And so we have these dishes. That's, that's a tradition in our culture. And may, maybe younger generations aren't as into it. But the idea actually goes back to the construction of the tabernacle in the Old Testament under Moses where the utensils in the tabernacle were to be consecrated or sanctified, set apart, made holy for their special use of God's work in the temple. So Paul picks up on that same idea in terms of items and buildings being sanctified, and he applies it to all of those who are in Christ. So Paul lets the Corinthians and us know this is who we are. You're sanctified. You're made holy. You've been set apart in Christ for the work of God. That is who we collectively are in Jesus. You are living in the world Yet at the same time, you are distinct from the world and set apart for Christ, made holy in Christ. Now, the Apostle Peter says the same thing in 1 Peter chapter 2. He says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So together, we are separate from the world when it comes to our values our priorities, our attitudes, our behaviors. Did the Corinthians then still live in Corinth? Sure. And do we still live in Michigan and in America? Sure. But though we live in the world, we are distinct from the world and set apart for Christ. Here's the point. When we lose our distinction, we, along with the world, create division. Instead of bringing light, we show darkness. Instead of being salt, we spoil. What is your view of the things of life? What is your view of money? Is it consistent with your citizenship here or your citizenship in heaven? What about your view of success, your view of power, your view of politics? Is your life being shaped by your new nature, marked by sainthood, or by your old nature, marked by sin? If I'm being honest here with you this morning, I, I do. I have incredible pride in my citizenship as an American citizen. There's many things, of course, that are very broken in our culture, in our nation, historically and otherwise. But I deeply appreciate our nation, and I believe it's worth defending and nurturing. But here's the thing. We must not prioritize being identified with American values or conservative values, or whatever values, more than we are being identified with biblical values. 
of all the different value systems that the world has and all those different identity markers that the world wants to lobby at us and label me with, the only one I ultimately want to be held accountable to are the values stated within this book. Let's not get confused with all the others. When they align, great. But the values that I hold, everything else is a very exponentially distant second place to the fact that we are grounded in Christ and His way, His word, His love, His message, His truth, His values. In every one of our relationships in this church, our values ought to be shaped by our call to be made holy in Christ, period, full stop, the end. In every one of our relationships in this church, when Christ is the center, when Christ is the focus, when he is the aim, when he is the end, when he is the motivation, when he is the inspiration, when he is our celebration, when he is our hope and our way and our truth and our life, that is when division is destroyed. And when all we ever see around us is division, our distinction from the world, the very representation of the gospel through us, the way we best model the gospel to the world, ultimately, the Bible says, is through our love for one another. Another way to state that is our unity and community. That's what we have to offer. That's what we have to demonstrate. So unity, then, is our second answer. What does it mean to be called together in Christ? It means we are together called to holiness, and it means we are together called to unity. The first half of verse 2 emphasizes that we're distinct from the world. The second half emphasizes that we are called to unity. Paul goes on to say, Together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. So sometimes in Paul's letters, he will address a certain group of people within the church. In Ephesians, he talks specifically to husbands, then wives, then parents, then children. In other letters, he talks to elders, then he speaks to deacons. But in this letter, from beginning to end, he always addresses the whole group. Yes, they put their faith in Christ individually, but they have been saved into a spiritual family, a local spiritual family that is not only unified with itself, the church of God in Corinth, but unified, it says, with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. So get what Paul is saying here. He's saying you can be unified together like the church of God in Royal Oak. And we have a lot of work to do just with that calling right there. Because there's so much room for division. I I sometimes hear, uh, you know, I I know what happens in these seasons of in-between. I know what happens in these seasons of in-between when we're on this search for a campus pastor. I've been around our church for a while. There starts to creep up these conversations about division. Now we start to check out these other places. Now we're not as connected to our community. Now we're comparing one preacher to the next. And when's this guy coming back? And what about this? And what about that? And all the different things that can happen, all the different ways division can creep in. So we have a calling first as a church family, but then he goes further. And he says, even if you're unified together, if you're not unified with all those in every place who also call upon the name of the Lord Jesus, then something's wrong. Now, the interesting thing is that the church of Jesus Christ, when it was first established in the first century, 
It went centuries without having a great schism, a separation. The thing that they guarded more than anything else when it came to the message of the gospel and the truth of God's word was their unity. They would have councils to uh, identify teaching that was a false gospel and councils that would promote orthodoxy. And so today, of course, there's all this denominationalism, all this separation, and some of that is important. There's a reason why I'm a part of Woodside Bible Church. There's a reason why I'm a part of our church, and yet, at the same time, we need to understand this whole concept of unity, which is not really something that we grasp so deeply because of the culture that we're in, is fundamental to the development of our faith and our testimony to the world. And so he's saying here, be connected with all of those. You have unity with all of those who call upon the name of Jesus. If you are together with anyone then who is also under the lordship of Christ, then you are together. My daughter Lee and I just got back from spending two weeks in South Africa with uh, 13 other people from Woodside. It was really a dream come true trip for me. Ever since my children were little, I was hoping to take them on an international missions trip when they got into high school. Uh, that's where I was called to faith. It was actually in South Africa. I'm sorry, called to ministry. It was actually in South Africa. And so I was excited when my daughter uh, had the chance to go with me to this nation and do some ministry. The trip ended up being uh, six dads and eight daughters. It was a father-daughter trip. And we had one uh, kind of group team mom, uh, Kathy Hernandez. Thank you, Jesus, for Kathy, who is a nurse from our Troy campus. And so we went to South Africa, and we spent time serving a group of people in the Limpopo. That's the north east province of the country in a village, a flyover village, meaning nobody pays attention to it, in a village called Mavusa, a tribal village. I had the opportunity to preach to a group of 30 or so believers in that village that made up the church of God that is called Mavusa. I can't remember or even pronounce the language they spoke. It's only been like a week. I don't know what it's called. I can't remember or pronounce any of the names of the people I met. I remember Pastor David, and I don't think that was his real name. <laughs> but I don't remember anybody else's name. But when the small little section, we actually broke into different groups, and so there was just a small portion of our team that was at this particular church with me that morning. Um, when we sang, we sang together. When we prayed, we prayed together. When we gave, we gave together. It was interesting to me that some cultures, they demonstrate parts of the gospel that are so beautiful that we can learn from. And there's parts of our church family that are so beautiful that they could learn from. But one of the things that I learned there was just this idea of community and unity expressed in a very powerful way. Even in their offering, we were giving the offerings they had a plate people would bring it up and they drop what's called their currency their rand into that plate and after it was done they, they actually were counting the offering while we were worshiping they count the whole offering then they share the total amount and then they distribute some of the funds and then they tell you what they're going to do with it all right then it's like all part of the service and that particular sunday because they had a few americans that were there and 
for every dollar, they get 18 rand or 16, 17 rand. That's the conversion rate. And so, quite frankly, we just had some leftover rand and we're like putting it in there. But just because of the impoverished nature of that church, because we put this rand into that offering that morning, they, they had been worshiping in this building, just this stone building for three years, as no doors, no windows. They've been basically adding brick by brick as an offering comes in. And after that offering, they said, because of the offering this morning, we'll have windows next week. First time in three years. Pastor Chris was speaking at another church down the road, a different village. And as he preached, and then the pastor came up afterward and uh, presented an opportunity for people to receive Jesus, to submit their lives to Jesus as Lord and Savior, three people responded. And when they came up, the pastor introduced those three people to the congregation of a couple hundred people in that case. And he said, Here's their names. He introduced them by name. And then he said to them, who will now walk with them? They had just come to faith. No one was even going to leave the facility, leave the building before those brothers and sisters, those new brothers and sisters in Christ, had another brother and sister that would walk with them, that would disciple them, that would teach them the ways of Jesus before they ever even walked out the door. Community. The very next Sunday, all three were baptized. It was like there was no opportunity given for that seed to be snatched away. Why? Because they value community. Now, we demonstrate some of the same beautiful things, friends, but let's just know that within our culture, we have so much opportunity, so much distraction, so many things that take us so many different directions. Just open up your calendar and you'll see the war literally at play. And so how hard is it to actually have unity when you don't know the people that you're in family with? When they're not doing life with you. So this is a picture of something that I learned from that time there. The reality is, in one sense, we have more in common and are closer to other Christians in Mavusa than we do with our own family members who don't know Christ. Why? Because we are in Christ. That identity transcends every barrier the world tries to create. Is Spartan green and white or maize and blue a stronger bond than Christ? Is red or blue a stronger bond than Christ? Is black, white, brown, or any other color a stronger bond than Christ? Every marker that would bring disunity comes under the authority of Jesus Christ our Lord. The Apostle Paul is fleshing out what it, what it means to be called together in Christ. It means that we're called to holiness we're called to unity, which assumes deep relationship, walking together, doing life with one another. And we're called finally and briefly to gracious peacemaking. Look at verse 3. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul ends his greeting to them with a blessing. Grace and peace come from our Heavenly Father's heart and flow to us through Jesus, our Mediator. This one verse is almost like a summary of Paul's entire theology. God deals with us graciously in Christ, reconciling us to himself as our Father in a relationship of peace. 
So if we grow in grace towards one another, if we grow in peace towards one another, we will grow together. To the degree then which you've received grace, we're called to extend it. To the degree to which you are at peace with God, you'll extend it. We have God's grace in Christ. We have God's peace in Christ. The world is not gracious. Newsflash. The world is not at peace. Newsflash. So we take God's gift and message of grace and peace to a desperate world. And the number one way that that is represented to that world is this community. How together we are. The unity and love that we demonstrate for one another. Paul says it this way again in Ephesians, For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in the flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Creating division, easy. Being used of God through his spirit to create peace, that's hard. And like Jesus, that will cost you. It will cost you to bring peace, to reconcile whatever is going on perhaps in your marriage. It will cost you to bring peace in your relationships with your children to demonstrate that grace. It will cost you. And yet, that's exactly the full life that Jesus wants us to experience and has promised to us. In John 14, 27, Jesus says, Peace, I leave with you. My peace, I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. So when we experience his peace, which is already ours through his spirit, through faith, then we need not be afraid. We need not fear because we have the peace of God within. Now, maybe our world is more divided than ever, but that just means we have more opportunity than ever. It starts with knowing that being called together means we must have a deep commitment to this local community. We must practice presence in a culture of impermanence. We must practice presence in a culture of impermanence. You can't be family if you're not around. Our idea of presence is so short-lived and distracted, we can't sit still long enough with a group of people to even get offended. Or if we do get offended, we'll just leave that group of people and find somebody who agrees with us. Because that's easier. And I love the fact that you are all here, and I know some people have joined us online, and I love that we have technology to connect with people who are distant, on vacation, or sick. But if you're around, I love the fact that you guys are here, committed, together, in community with each other. There's no, there's no other way to do it. There's no other way to experience family other than physical presence of serving one another in this kind of way. We are called together in Christ. The church of God in Royal Oak is called together in Christ. This church has been called to holiness. You have been called to unity. You have been called to gracious peacemaking. 
It's not the nature of the church to be divided. Your family has been called to holiness, called to unity, called to peace. It is not in the nature of the Christ follower for our families to be divided. How do we do this even as we leave and get into our car rides and start to talk about lunch? Pray before you pronounce. Listen before your lips move. Ask before you assume. And let's treat each other with the gracious love that the gospel demands. And as we do so, as God brings that reconciliation with one another, as we demonstrate the work of the gospel in our own lives, the world will take notice and God will get the glory. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for your word. Thank you that there is no division for those who are in Christ Jesus. Father, that in Jesus we are called to holiness, to unity, to peace. We have all these gifts because of the work of your Son. And Father, I pray that if there be any here today, perhaps even people who are watching or joining us online this morning, and they have not received your peace because they have not yet submitted their lives to Jesus as their Lord and Savior, saying, in their hearts, through their minds, in prayer to you, I am a sinner in need of your grace. I do not have peace with you because I have not put my faith in your Son. The Father, today, even as we'll have men and women at the front of this church, as we close out this last song, men and women who are here to say, I will pray with you, I will walk with you, I will disciple you, May we live out our faith in beautiful community. Father, bind this campus together. Join their hearts through their life groups, through their staff team, through one another, Father, that they would be centered only on Jesus, a light in this dark place. That, Father, all the things that are screaming for our attention, that distract and cause division, that we would properly place them deeply underneath the Lordship of Christ. That we'd hold biblical values and not worldly ones. So Father, be with your people. Protect us, guide us, and use us for your glory. You promise that you will. You promise that the gates of Hades will not prevail against your church. So hold us tightly in your grip. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.